As we get into our study today, I want us to think about living out a biblical worldview as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, Barna Research published uh, survey results several years back that dealt with this idea of whether or not you have a biblical worldview. And so what they uh, found out, is, as many of us may already know, is that very few of us actually have and follow a biblical worldview. For the purpose of the survey, they defined a biblical worldview as adhering to these following characteristics. Uh, They believe in absolute moral truth. Satan is considered to be a real being, not merely symbolic. The Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles that it teaches. A person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good or do good works. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. And God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. Anyone who held all of these beliefs was considered to have a biblical worldview. The research indicated in its final tally that only 9%, that's 9 people out of 100, actually adhered to a biblical worldview. And even among those who profess to be born again, we only find that 19% of them had a biblical worldview. There's no wonder that we are no longer a Christian nation. Because we don't even adhere to the word of God that we as Christians are supposed to. I want to look at some tests, three tests today, that will help us determine where our worldview is and whether or not our faith in Jesus Christ is genuine or not. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29 will be our text today. As you're turning there, those of you that are physically able, if you would stand with me in the honor of the reading of the Word of God. Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter 
the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many good works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, look into your word today, we open our hearts and our minds uh, to the Holy Spirit that he would teach us. Uh, Lord, I I pray that uh, you would just guide our time together and that you'll speak into our hearts that we might leave this place different than when we came and that it would all be for your honor and for your glory. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as we think about this passage of Scripture, I see three tests here that will help us to determine where our worldview is and the authenticity of our relationship with Christ or the authenticity of our Christianity, if you will. Uh, Because it's obvious here that many who think that they are believers are not. And so, first of all, I want to lay a a biblical context for chapter 7. Of course, uh, chapter... Four begins the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus uh, gives the Beatitudes and other things, uh, teachings through there. And so he is, it's, one, it's, it's the, maybe the greatest sermon he ever preached, but it's, I guess all of them are pretty great. But uh, certainly one that's, that's packed with, with good stuff. But if we're going to think about how you and I as Christians live out a biblical worldview, then first of all, we need to understand what what really does worldview mean? Webster's Dictionary says it's the way someone thinks about the world. And to help explain that a little bit more, it uh, it's if you think of it in a like a, a culture or people group, Worldview is a profile of the way the people in a specific culture behave according to the values and beliefs that they hold common. So how do we cultivate, how do we develop a worldview? Well, a worldview is, 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 there's going to be a pyramid that will help you see this pictorially in just a minute. And basic to every person is their worldview. And it's formed by, first of all, what we believe to be true. You know, do I believe that life begins at conception or at birth? Do I believe that God is the ultimate authority or am I the ultimate authority? You know, it goes on and on. What do I believe to be true? And... What we believe leads us to have certain values in life. What do we value? And then our behavior flows out of what we value. Let me give you an example. 
you know, Don sitting over here is a, he's in the banking world, a lot of business meetings. And I can almost assure you that, that promptness is, he believes is important. And so he may walk into a meeting and he happens to be five minutes late this time. And he's just going to slip in and sit down because the leader of the group has already started. And because he, he values promptness and he's not going to disturb the equilibrium of the group and not going to impose upon that leader's time. Well, we lived in East Africa for a while. And if you are over in East Africa and Juma walks into the group five minutes later and, and the leader of the group has already started his meeting... He still walks around and he greets everybody in the room before he sits down. Because relationships, he believes, are important. And he values social interaction in order to cultivate and stimulate those relationships. And so you see two very different behaviors. You know, when... when most of us walk into a, a room where a meeting has already started. We're going to sit down quickly. That's not the case, but it's different beliefs and values that, that drive our behavior. You take that to a, a more spiritual level. Uh, you take the, the idea of abortion. If, if a person believes that life begins at conception... There's no way in the world that I'm ever going to kill that child. But if I believe that life begins at birth, then my behavior will be very different because we're not talking about a life. But the Bible speaks clearly to that. And we need to cultivate a biblical worldview and live that worldview out. The statistics will tell us that 80 to 85%, depending on what you look like, 80 to 85% of Christians have never shared the gospel with someone else. How many of you in this room believe that the person in Africa or India that has never heard the name of Jesus Christ is condemned to an eternal separation from God apart from faith in Jesus Christ? How many of you actually believe that? All right. Many of us profess that we believe that those people must hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. But then 80 to 85% of us have never even shared the gospel with anyone. Do we really believe that? You see, a worldview is what actually our behavior says that we truly believe. We, we hold it as a value in our life. You see, the reality of it is, is that many Christians, even our worldview is a syncretistic blend of the culture and the Bible. We're going to pick and choose the parts that we want to hold to for our comfort and convenience and justify the actions that we have. So we need to understand. The Jewish culture at this time, at the time of, of, of Matthew chapter 7, you see it was a very legalistic system at that point in time. They believed that those that were wealthy and prosperous 
we're being blessed by God. If you have good health, you're blessed by God because you're faithfully keeping the, the laws that they had laid out before them. It says if, if you are poor or lame or blind, then you're cursed by God because of some law that you have broken. An example of that is found in John chapter 9, uh, verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that the man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So indicative of the reality that their first uh, impression to the disciples as they encountered this blind man is, why is he blind? Is it his sin or his parents? Jesus said it's neither one. In chapters 4 through 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is in the process of turning the Jews' worldview upside down. You see, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You see, Jesus is taking things to a whole new level. He doesn't simply expect a uh, conformance or compliance to a set of rules. But he expects a heart change. That's totally and fully committed to him. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's not a legalistic rule, but it's a a change of heart that desires to conform to the principles of Jesus He's laying the foundation for the understanding that there is none righteous. We can't keep enough rules to be righteous. Everyone needs to be saved by Him. He goes on to say, love your enemies. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. Calling attention to yourself, but go into your closet. Do you see a significant difference there between the Jewish worldview and and the worldview that Jesus is presenting to the people here? There is none righteous, no, not one. We, everyone, need to be saved by Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture, I see three tests that will help us determine where our worldview actually lines up. The first test is the test of self-denial. In verses 13 through 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, or by it, are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus is talking about two very different lifestyles here. One of these lifestyles is a choice of self-denial, sacrifice, 
persecution, suffering. The other is one of ease and compromise. It's comfortable. It's popular. But we've got, there are only two choices that we can make. Are we going to choose the way of self-denial? Self-denial being a full surrender of all that we are and all that we have to Jesus Christ. You know, Luke 9.23 lays out three premises for being a disciple of Jesus Christ. He said, Jesus said, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You see, it begins with self-denial. I fully recognize that I desperately need a Savior. I can do nothing to save myself. I surrender my self-righteousness, my self-dependency, my self-sufficiency, my selfish ways, and I, I put Jesus Christ on the throne of my heart. And then as I follow him and walk in obedience to him, I take up my cross daily. I've said this in here before, but your cross is not your mother-in-law. Many folks, it's just my cross to bear. Some hardship in life or some person that's difficult. What was Jesus' cross? Jesus went to that cross. He was nailed to it. His blood was shed with much pain and suffering and agony and humility. Was it for his good? It was an act of obedience to the Father's will. That you and I might be able to be reconciled to him because of our sinful depravity. You see... It was a sacrificial, redemptive ministry for the behalf of others at great personal cost. That's what our cross is. Are we willing to operate in such a way that we are relating to other people in a way that is going to bring redemption to their lives? At whatever cost to us it might incur. That's our cross to bear. It's walking in obedience to Jesus Christ and following His model of how we relate to other people. So, we must choose self-denial, comfort, and popularity. Everyone must choose for himself or herself A narrow gate of surrender or a broad gate of self-sufficiency? Which one have you chosen? True righteousness leads to self-denial. What I mean by true righteousness? True righteousness is a righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. You see... Our righteousness is as filthy rags, and many of us are are trusting in being a pretty good person. 
You know, to miss the mark, to fall short of the glory of God, doesn't mean we have to go out and commit murder and adultery and, and rape and everything else. There's a lot of things that we can do. We can gossip about our neighbor. We can lose our temper with our wife or our husband. There's a lot of things that cause us to miss the mark, to fall short of the glory of God. And every one of those separates us from God himself. And so when we truly surrender in repentance and faith to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, he imputes to us his righteousness that we might stand before a holy, righteous God, justified. So that true, if there's true righteousness in your life, it leads to, to a life of self-denial. If there's not, you're going to continue in your self-sufficient, self-serving ways. You know, these two paths speak to our culture today as related to tolerance and progressiveness. You know, when the next professional athlete comes out and and speaks to his alternate lifestyle, the reality that he or she is gay, he's commended. And as we accept that, we're being progressive. Well, according to the Bible, we're actually being regressive. Tolerance today is defined by our culture. I do not have the right to say that I am right and you are wrong. We'll just both be right. No absolute truth. But you know what tolerance really means? It means that I have the right to be right and recognize that you are wrong and I tolerate you being wrong. That's what real tolerance is. Because you see, as believers, we're not, you know, even though we disagree with a lifestyle or another sin, whatever it's going to happen to be, because the Bible clearly points it out as sin. I don't have to conform to the culture and say, okay, we can just all be okay, because we're not according to the Word of God. But as a believer, I do need to tolerate that different position from a perspective. I hope to have an opportunity to relate to them in such a way that I can share the gospel with them and see them disciple and see them turn from that sin and truly know Christ as their Lord and Savior. But we must not conform to the definitions of our culture. But as we do not conform, we must also love and do everything that we can to speak into their lives truth. You see, how many of you have been told that you're narrow-minded? Most of the time they don't mean that very nicely, do they? 
It's, it's a good thing to be narrow-minded. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except through me. There's no other name given among men whereby you might be saved. You see, the, the, we cannot come to God on any other term than His. You're narrow-minded. You're judgmental. Oh, you're so judgmental. No, I'm not. I am seeking to... Now, our attitudes... you know, See, our culture defines it differently. Our culture says that if you don't agree with me, you're judging me. But it's okay if they disagree with me. That's not judging. But see... When the Bible speaks of not judging, it says, look, if you're going to be critical of someone else, make sure you're dealing with the stuff in your own life. You know, get the sin out. Be dealing with it. And that's what real, you know, so when the Bible tells us do not judge, it's speaking of don't judge in such a way that we're overlooking the sin in our own life. Because it tells us when we catch a brother in a fault, we're to go to them. And restore them. So. We have the test. Of self-denial. Are you living out a life that's indicative of a true. And complete and total surrender to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Or are you following. A comfortable, popular life. Secondly, there's the test of spiritual fruit. In uh, verses 15 through 23, he talks about a tree and its fruit. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Or grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. You see, first he's talking about False preachers, those who claim to be God's spokespersons, but are not. Like wolves in sheep's clothing, they give all external appearances of promoting authentic Christianity in both work and work, in word and work. We need to understand that following a biblical worldview demands discernment. How are we going to be discerning? Well, if the, if the Word of God is our guideline, if we're, ha- if we're truly following a biblical worldview, then the Bible is going to be the plumb line, if you will, by which we judge everything, by which we measure everything. And so we must know the Word of God. Many of us are unable to be discerning because we don't even know the Word of God. We read it on the screen every Sunday. We must be in the Word of God in such a way that we're growing and learning more and more. The Bible is our guide for what is good and not. So we've got to know the Bible. You know, Isaiah 48 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Jesus Himself said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. Matthew 24. You see, the Word of God is the only thing that's going to endure. All of these cultural views and 
popular speakers and all of those are going to pass away. But the Word of God will remain forever. And it must be our guide to identify a false prophet. His standards of good must line up with the Bible. You know, when it comes to sexuality, adultery, homosexuality, salvation in Christ alone, sanctity of life, all of these issues must line up with the Word of God. I know of, of, of pastors in the United States that lead major congregations that have been unwilling to say that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. That there, Oh, there, there are many ways to God. That's not what the Bible says. So we need to be discerning. And in order to be discerning, we've got to know what the Bible says because it is our guide for what is good and not. So we're talking about false prophets, those who proclaim to be representatives of God, but they're not. And then secondly, I think he's talking about those that he's referring to false professors of Christ. False professors of faith in Christ. You see in verse 21 he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Just because you profess the name of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that he knows you. You see, we can get a little bit confused because Romans ten thirteen says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, Anytime we interpret a passage of Scripture, we've got to interpret it in in context of the whole of Scripture. And in Acts, it speaks of repent. And in James, it says, faith without works is dead. And so when you call on the name of the Lord, you can say, Lord, please save me. But what's the intent of your heart? Have you come to a place of brokenness over your sin, recognizing your total depravity and and need for a Savior and inability to save yourself, and, and, and are sorry because you've broken the heart of God because of the sinfulness in your life, and you fully surrender all that you are to Him as Lord of your life? See, Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord... And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It says, don't call on him. It doesn't say anything about calling on him as Savior. It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, Lord indicates a full surrender of your life to his lordship in your life. Many of us have desired not to go to hell. You know, I, I don't, sure don't want to go to hell. And so, Lord, I, I want you to be my Savior. You have an intellectual commitment to Jesus Christ because you really do believe that He's Jesus, He's the Son of God. But there's an intellectual commitment there, thinking that that's going to be sufficient. But an intellectual commitment is not what He's asking for. He's asking for a radical surrender of all that you are to Him. That's what a saving faith is. It's a faith that results in fruit. You see... As we think about these false professors of Christ, when he says, Lord, he says, uh, they say, Lord, Lord, 21. Uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. You see, their inward nature is not changed. They merely wear the outward guise of a sheep. 
2 Peter 1.4 tells us this, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You see, if you're truly saved, there's a true surrender to the Lordship of Christ. You become a partaker of the divine nature of God. They call Christ Lord and even do religious deeds, but they have not been saved. How do we detect these false believers? How do you evaluate your own life? Well, in verses 16 and 20, it says you'll know them by their fruit. What fruit's being born in your life? Well, the Bible speaks of multiple kinds of fruit that we're to to bear as a believer. The fruit of the Spirit or Christian character is described in the Beatitudes in Galatians 5. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Gentleness, long-suffering, self-control. Are those fruits evident in your life? Hebrews 13, 15 speaks of the fruit of the lips. Offering testimony and praise to God. Holy living is a fruit that we ought to bear. Romans 6, 22. Colossians 1.10 says we're to bear fruit of good works. Uh, Romans 1.13 says lost souls won to Christ. You know, if an apple tree produces apples and orange, oranges, what might a disciple of Christ produce? Other disciples. You know, even the trees, they have some nice leaves. That give it its character and, and help in its identification, such as the fruits of the Spirit would be in our life. But ultimately, the fruit that it's going to bear is going to be the Christian, is going to be other disciples. Now, we've got 80 to 85% of, the, of Christians, professing Christians, who've never even shared the gospel with someone else. How many do you think are really bearing fruit of making disciples? So we'll know them by their fruits. Professing Christians may be involved in religious activities and pretend to be saved. But they, if they are honestly born again, they will reveal these fruits in their daily lives. I'm not being judgmental here. This is the word of God. That we will know them by their fruits. Martin Lloyd-Jones commented like this. He said, A Christian can generally be known by his very appearance. The man who really believes in the holiness of God and who knows his own sinfulness and the blackness of his own heart, the man who believes in the judgment of God and the possibility of hell and torment, the man who really believes that he himself is so vile and helpless that nothing but the coming of the Son of God from heaven to earth and his going to the bitter shame and agony and cruelty of the cross could ever save him and reconcile him to God. This man is going to show all that in his personality. 
He is a man who is, about, who is bound to give the impression of meekness. He is bound to be humble. Our Lord reminds us here that if a man is not humble, we are to be very wary of him. He can put on a kind of sheep's clothing. But that is not true humility. That is not true meekness. And if a man's doctrine is wrong, it will generally show itself at this point. He will be affable and pleasant. He will appeal to the natural man and to the things that a man who has seen himself as a hell-bound sinner and who has been saved by grace of God alone. See, we need to be sure that we don't just have on sheep's clothing and there's a ravenous wolf inside, but that we're truly surrendered and we're bearing fruit that's consistent with the Word of God, with the principles of Christ. You know, the next bullet point there is these counterfeits are surprised at this judgment. Many who say to me, Lord, Lord, will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. He said, and many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not teach a connect group? Did we not go to Sunday, you know, three Sundays out of four? Go to church three Sundays out of four. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Or we took some meals to some folks that needed it. And do many mighty works in your name. Oh, I just went to on a mission trip to Montana. That, that ought to be good enough. See, some of us are going to be surprised. Because we're trusting in, we've got an intellectual commitment to Jesus. But there's no surrender of our heart. There's no true commitment to a worldview that's consistent with the Word of God. It's possible to fool ourselves. If you don't do anything else today, you do business with God and make sure that your salvation is real. That there's a true surrender. You see, in 2 Corinthians 4, the scripture tells us that Satan blinds the eyes. He blinds the mind of men and he deceives people into thinking that they're saved. Satan has been in rebellion against God from the very beginning. And there's nothing more that he would like than to have you sitting on this pew every Sunday and, and being deceived about genuine salvation. When Christ returns, millions of professing Christians will be surprised to find out that they were never saved at all. So we got to test of self-denial. Have I really put away my self-sufficiency and self-dependency and I'm fully and wholly committed to God? Does the fruit that's being born, being shown in my life, the behavior that I actually exhibit, 
as well as the thoughts that I have, are they fruit that are consistent with the Word of God? And then thirdly is the test of storms. A worldview that is acceptable to God is not only one where you believe the truth, but you are seeking to live out the truth in your life. You see, every one of us have had, will have, are in the process of having storms in our life. Whoever hears these words of mine and obeys them is like the man who built his house on the rock. Whoever hears these words of mine and does not obey them is like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The storms are coming. Financial problems, marital problems, problems with rebellious children, aging parents, disease, automobile wrecks, all kinds of disasters that can come our way. The list could go on and on. Every one of us, these, both of these styles of life are going to be tested. But Jesus is very clear that only those that are built upon the rock, the rock of the Word of God and, and Jesus Christ as Lord, are going to be sustained. You know, as sweet as Jerry Ann is, we've had some problems along the way. But she hung in there, and she's still with me. Because her life is built on the rock of Jesus Christ. Every one of you are going to face trials in life. The storms are coming. And if it's not built, if it's built on the, the, the precepts of this world, it's as the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the storms come, it's going to collapse, and great is going to be its fall. None of us are exempt from problems. But how we get through those struggles in life are going to be dependent upon where we've built our foundation. Our, our lifestyle is going to be tested. Are we going to be able to get through it because our foundation is Christ? Or is the fall going to be great because we've trusted in this world? The foolish man, the wise man is the one who hears the word of God and obeys them. Not merely that intellectual commitment, but a follow through to real obedience. The foolish man builds his house on the principles of this world. Unsurrendered areas of your life open you up to Satan's work. God's not asking for part of us. He's asking for all of us. You know, we want to hold on to this area of life over here and give God that one. That's not what he's asking for. He wants radical surrender to his life. Now, I'm not talking about the reality that, you know, I struggle with sin. I might get angry one day. I might disappoint my wife. 
I might have an impure thought. All of us struggle with sin, but am I dealing with it? Am I surrendering it to God and allowing Him to to transform me, to change me? There's a big difference in that and and holding on to this area and saying, I'm not going to give it to you, God. That's not lordship. So, these three tests will help us determine, is our salvation real? Am I producing fruit that's consistent with a saving faith? It'll help us determine what our worldview is. Am I seeing compromise in my life that's not consistent with what the Word of God says? And as a disciple of Christ, we must be living out our life, a worldview that is consistent with the, the Word of God. So my question for you today is, do you have a biblical worldview? The storms are coming. Under what authority and protection are you living your life? Jesus is calling for radical submission. Not part-time submission. He's talking about radical submission. Conclude with the point of it all. A true disciple of Christ will live his or her life in such a way that reflects a worldview consistent with the authority and truth of the Word of God.